Well, you are in the seminar servant, reaping a reward. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Um, but just to start, our family lived in the Middle East for about six years in the city of Dubai. We've now been in Southern California for several years, but before that, we were in Dubai. And when we moved there, I was so excited to learn from all these different cultures that are there. I don't know if you know anything about the United Arab Emirates or the city of Dubai, but it is an incredibly diverse place. There are so many nations represented. You will find people from every, I don't know if you know what the 1040 window is, but it's some of the least resourced places on the face of the earth in terms of the gospel. And in Dubai, you would have access to people from all the countries represented in the 1040 window, as well as people from South America, uh, from North America, from Europe, um, Africa, Australia, e everywhere. There were people from everywhere represented in Dubai. So I was very excited when I moved there to be able to learn and get to know all these other cultures, to be in a new environment. But within days of being there, my optimism and excitement were shattered when I realized that over there, I quickly learned people assumed that I was a servant or a laborer. There's a variety of reasons for this, which I won't get into, but the labor class in the Middle East is made up of people who have moved from other countries in order to work as nannies, maids, cooks, construction laborers, restaurant and store workers. And wherever I went, people assumed I was either my husband's maid or nanny, and that my children were not necessarily my children. And they would treat me like I was their servant until they realized that I was my husband's wife or that I was the mom of my children, mom over my children. So I was shocked, I was offended, then I was grieved, and I struggled for, I think, the first year with just being thought of as a servant and being treated as a servant part of the servant class. I didn't like it, and this was a total gut check to me. I was so busy pitying myself that I didn't give thought to what so many of my brothers and sisters in the church in Dubai were going through on a daily basis. And we, over the years of doing ministry there, heard so many heartbreaking stories, and we knew of hardships that, that people in this working class were facing. Things like they come, they take a job, they get their passport taken away, and they're not paid, and now they're stuck in a country that they can't get out of with a family back home that needs money but isn't getting any. So during that season, God rebuked me. I was completely blinded to what so many people in the country were facing, the, mis the level of mistreatment that they were receiving. But God also wanted me to know that what I had misunderstood was what it meant to be his servant. Well, the Bible has a lot to say about God's people being known and recognized as his servants. It's part of our identity, actually. What is a servant according to God? Why do we have identity issues when it comes to being thought, thought of as servants? Why do we have identity issues? Because we do. We have issues with the idea of servanthood or serving. Some of us women, we love to serve because that's when we are seen or applauded. 
Some of us, we don't serve because we don't see the value of it or what we get from it. Some women don't serve because it takes too much time and it's just something that, you know, I don't have. Maybe some women feel too unworthy or ill-equipped to serve others. And some women love serving because it's easy. They were raised in a home where you met needs, and so service comes very easily. Even my kids will say things like, when they're mad at each other and one of them's trying to tell the other one to do something, they'll say, I'm not your servant, right? We got issues with serving and servanthood. We have a love-hate relationship with serving. Um, From the book Identity Theft, there was this really funny example that I'm going to read for us from Betsy Childs Howard. She says, it's Wednesday night. I've cooked dinner for the Bible study that we host each week in our house. The meal is ready on time. The members arrive from their jobs around the city. They come in and they say, oh, it smells amazing. It turns out to be tasty. The men help themselves to seconds. The women announce it was amazing. And I think to myself silently, I love to serve. Now, she says, it's Thursday night. I've cooked dinner for my husband and myself. I got a late start because I forgot to buy fresh garlic at the store and I had to go back. I turned the oven up, hoping that the meal will cook faster. The kitchen's hot, I'm sweaty, but we sit down to eat too many minutes after I had planned. Then I cut into my chicken breast and I see the sickening pink of an uncooked middle. I start a passionate internal monologue of self-defense in my mind. He has no idea how much I do for us. He takes me for granted. Our oven is not reliable. I do too much for our church. The fact that our chicken is raw is not my fault. She says these two situations kind of capture her love-hate relationship with serving. When serving makes me look good, it's rewarding. When my service is deficient, I get angry and I want to blame someone else. When my service is overlooked, I feel resentful and unappreciated. We have issues with serving, don't we? The British preacher Charles Spurgeon said this, Man is born to be a servant, and a servant he must be. Who shall be his master? That is the question. What does it mean to be God's servant? So I'm just going to give us a definition right at the beginning so that you know what I'm working with here. A servant is one who lives and works to please and honor God, their master. So I'll say that again. A servant is one who lives and works to please and honor God, their master. So if that's what a servant is, then here's what a servant does. So then service according to the Bible, is a posture of total devotion to glorifying the one we serve. So then service is a posture of total devotion to glorifying the one we serve. And this was God's design for us as humans before the fall. That every area of our life must be lived with this posture of total devotion to his glory. And it's not just at work. What we do during the day, it's not just in the church, it's not just in our family, it's all of it. Every sphere of our life must be touched by this posture of service. And this theme of the servant runs throughout the Bible. 
Like when you think of 1 Kings 18, Elijah, and he goes to battle with the prophets of Baal. I don't know if you remember that story. And they're, they're kind of doing this battle to see whose God is the living God. Well, at the very end, right before God consumes Elijah's sacrifice with fire, this is what Elijah says. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. We also see David and the psalmists often referring to themselves as God's servant. So in Psalm 84, verse 10, this is what the psalmist says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. That's the posture of a servant of the Lord, right? Well, it doesn't stop there. It's not only in the Old Testament. This theme continues through the New Testament. If you read a lot of Paul's epistles, he will often start the greeting by referring to himself as a servant or a slave of God. So in Romans 1.1, Paul says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He identifies as a servant of God. He's putting it right out there. This is who I am. These people were not afraid to identify themselves as God's servant. In fact, they're eager to be associated with God's household and to submit themselves to God's authority. And as those who have tasted the goodness and the mercy of God, we too should be those who are eager to be associated and excited with being a servant in God's household. But we see that identity theft has happened right? Our identity as servants has been co-opted. And why is that? Well, it's because of the fall. Genesis 3. We were made to be servants, but we're not, we're not by nature servants. So what happened? In Genesis 3, we see that humanity's understanding of what it means to serve God has been affected. We were created to serve God and fulfill his purposes. There was joy and satisfaction in serving the living God. But the fall was a rejection of God's design for people. So Adam and Eve, in their arrogance, rejected God as master over them, choosing to serve themselves, even above him. To be a servant means that someone has authority over you. By rejecting their call to serve God with gladness, they were rejecting his authority over them. So the rejection, the rejecting of serving is also a rejection of authority. They were demonstrating that they were no longer God's people and they were no longer a part of his household. And in that moment, all of humanity was plunged into sin with them. So think about it. Like none of us are born ready to identify ourselves as God's servant, right? We don't come out of the womb ready to serve. Actually, all of us come out of the womb naturally rejecting good authority over us. So serving the Lord is a foreign concept to us. It's something we need to be taught. So that's why our identity as servants has been corrupted and distorted. Well, what about today? We're going to get to this, how Jesus redeems this identity of a servant. But even today... My husband was reminding me of John Milton's, uh, John Milton's poem, Paradise Lost. 
And in it, he has this, you know, it's a fictional line, but he says, he has Satan saying this. Satan says, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. That is his heartbeat. Better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Now remember what the psalmist said earlier in 84.10. In 84.10 he said it, it would be better for him to be a doorkeeper in God's house than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Satan would rather reign in hell than serve God. And he would love for all of us to think the same thing. He would love for us to think that God is not worthy of our whole life service. He would love to render, specifically, God's people ineffective in their service to God. Well, how does he do this? He uses different tactics. These are things we need to be aware of today. He will tempt us to prioritize ourselves above the Lord. And he does this by helping to give ourselves the best, tempting us to think, hey, give yourself the best, give God the leftovers of your affection, of your time, of your resources. He will tempt us to give in to sin, to find sin normal and righteousness strange. He will tempt us and distract us to think so highly of ourselves that we think it's beneath us to serve others or to see service as an optional thing. Take it or leave it. He will render us ineffective by tempting us to feel insecure about who we are and how not capable of doing anything good, making us feel like we're not capable of doing anything good so that we just don't act. These are some of the ways that Satan tempts us so that he can render us ineffective in our service to God. So sisters, we're in a battle and we need to be on guard against his schemes. First Corinthians says, we are those who are not, we're not unaware that he has schemes. We know he has schemes. So we must remember that Satan even tried to tempt Jesus too. In Luke chapter four, Luke chapter four, seven, verses seven to eight, he goes to the son of God and he tries to tempt him. And what does he do? He tell, he asks Jesus to worship him. The devil. The audacity of this. And that if Jesus would do it and worship him, that he would give Jesus all his authority and glory. Wow. What a, what a good trade, right? No, no, this is so twisted and distorted and despicable. But how does Jesus answer him when he comes to Jesus with this temptation? He goes to God's word. He quotes Deuteronomy 6.13. He says, it is written. These are the words of God. You shall worship the Lord your God. And him only shall you serve. So Jesus is making that connection. Worship and service are linked with God. Worship and service are linked with God. So Jesus cuts to the heart of our identity as people. We were made to worship the Lord God. And him only are we to serve. Our allegiance is to God alone. We cannot serve two masters. As long as we are watchful, sisters, Satan will be unsuccessful at making us ineffective for our Lord. But what does it mean for us to be servants of God? We've seen how the fall affects it. We've seen how Satan distorts it and continues to scheme against us in it. But what does it actually mean for us to be servants of God? Well, on your handout at the very top, 
is Colossians 3, verses 23 to 24, which I'll read for us. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You are serving the Lord Christ. So our identity as servants is broken. Adam and Eve messed it up big time. But Jesus, good news, Jesus redeems it. Jesus humbled himself and came to this world in the form of a what? Servant. Philippians 2 says he was God, but he did not count equality with God, something to be grasped. He emptied himself and took the form of a servant. Being born, what does that mean? Being born as a man. And in human form, he obeyed God to the point of death, even death on a cross. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 20, verses 26 to 28. We're going to be all over the scriptures today. So Matthew chapter 20, I'm going to be looking at verses 26 to 28. So Matthew chapter 20. What did this humble servant Jesus say to his disciples who were recorded as constantly grumbling and, you know, bickering with each other about who was the greatest, right? They're always asking Jesus, who's the greatest? Who's going to get the seat of honor next to you in heaven? What does Jesus say to them? He says, he says this, Matthew chapter 20, verses 26, B, so the second part of it to verse 28. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever must be, would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' work as a servant of God was unique. It's unique to us. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Because none of us could serve in the way that Jesus served. Because we're sinners by nature. We can't free anybody because we ourselves were enslaved. But Jesus, the free one, the free son of God, came to free us. We were enslaved to sin, living in darkness. But now he has freed us to serve a far better and more excellent master in his kingdom of marvelous light. Do you know this kind master? If you don't, I encourage you to repent. Or another way to say this is resign from a life of disobedience. Put your trust in God's perfect son and servant, servant son. Put your trust in what he did for sinners through his life, his death, and his resurrection. You will never regret being under the good care of this loving God. He has never failed me. He will never fail you because of Christ. Because of what Jesus has done, we are now devoted to God's glory and honor. We can serve the purpose for which we were made. We can serve him as the master above all in our lives. Our God humbled himself to serve us. And we can only follow his example if he has redeemed us. So the most important thing for us to remember, looking back at Colossians 3, is this. Who we work for 
is more important than what we do. Who we work for is more important than what we do. We have an audience of one. That's the reality. We have an audience of one. Look back at Colossians 3, verses 23 to 24, which is on your handout. Paul says the same thing twice. In verse 23, he says, We work as for the Lord, not men. And then in verse 24, he ends that verse by saying, And we serve the Lord Christ. So whatever we do, he says, we must work heartily. He's calling these Christians, you are called to work hard. But more importantly than that, we work with the understanding that God is our boss. He is the one that we want to please the most. And you, when you know this, when you really get this, when we really get this, it changes everything about our lives. Um, in Dubai, I had a lot of friends who were flight attendants for this airline called Emirates Airlines. And so they would travel all over the world and they would just be on planes all the time. And one of uh, the women in our Bible study was telling me a story about just it, when you're on a plane, sometimes people are not in a good mood, right? And so the, she's faced a lot of different tough situations. And I asked her how she dealt with that. And she said to me, well, Bev, um, there's still joy in my work because even when people act up, God is my boss. God is my boss. And I was stunned. What a sweet reminder that even in the midst of sometimes mistreatment at her job, she was thinking, I still have joy because God is my boss. We are those who can be proud to serve the Lord of the heavens and earth. There is no shame in that. Well, not only has Jesus redeemed this identity of a servant for us, but he's also equipped us to serve. He's equipped us to serve God by building up the church. So in Ephesians 4, chapter 4, verse 7, Paul writes this, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So God has portioned out grace gifts to each of his servants according to the measure of Christ. And he does this so that that chapter says we would build up the body of Christ and that we would mature into the head who is Christ for the glory of God. We all know that this world is broken. It's obvious, right? But where can people actually taste what God's kingdom and household are like? Where? Where can people go to actually taste what he is like? In the church, in the church, sisters. It's in the church that the gospel takes shape. Uh, one friend said this, the church is gospel, the gospel is church-shaped. I love that. In the church, among God's people, those who are in his household, is where the Lord is seen most clearly for who he is. It should be this way. It's not always this way, but it should be this way. And if you are in Christ, he has given you gifts and equipped you to serve him. He doesn't need us to serve him. We were talking about that today. We're not defined by what we do. We're defined by who we serve. Remember that. We're defined by who we serve. He gives us the privilege of serving him. He gives us the honor of being included in his plans. And it's not only in the church, though that is critical that we use our gifts in the church, 
because that is where God is seen as we are gathered, the saints are gathered together to worship him. But also, it must touch on every area of our life, whether we're with people or we're even alone. In our relationships, at work, in our homes, in our communities, it's not like we go here and we're a servant and we go there and we're not. We are servants of God 24-7 everywhere we go. Well, the other thing we learn from Colossians is that we will reap a reward from the master. Look with me at Colossians 3, verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. We work hard as to the Lord and not to men because the Lord, it says, from him we will receive an inheritance as our reward. Betsy Childs Howard says this, the scriptural motive, so the motive that scripture gives us for service is the hope of blessing. It is the hope of blessing. And this is a theme that runs throughout the scriptures. We live and work to honor God in everything that we do, knowing that if even others don't see or care, our God sees and he will reward us. All of us should live and serve faithfully in such a way that we would want to hear God say on that final day, well done, my good and faithful servant. And here's that that second part of that verse. Enter into the joy of your master. Matthew 25, verse 23. I love that. This is the ultimate reward for us. It is the ultimate blessing that we would enter into the joy of our master. So, what are some helpful things we can think about practically when it comes to serving? Well, I have there on the sheet listed some of the pitfalls. I know that this list could probably go on and on, (laughs) given how we still struggle with sin here on this side of eternity. But these are just some helpful ways to think about our service in the day-to-day. So, I've listed some pitfalls, things that that we might fall into or st- like start to veer away from the road that God wants us to be on. And so I call them symptoms. They're symptoms of underlying bad motivations behind service. So these are things we should pay attention to. If you feel angry, anger could indicate that you have perfectionistic tendencies, that maybe there's an idolatry of your own reputation bound up with your service. Or, and I've done this one a lot, You idolize the people you serve, like my kids, my husband. I notice I get angry at them when my service is not received the way that I want it to be because I have put them as the audience instead of remembering that I have an audience of one and it's the Lord. Maybe you feel apathy or inaction. You just don't do anything. It could indicate that there is an inaccurate or incomplete understanding of your purpose in Christ and in his church. Maybe you feel bitterness or resentment towards other people, or there's a competitiveness or comparison there when you think about your service and their service. That could indicate that there's a desire growing to hoard God's glory to yourself. So you feel bitterness and you feel resentment towards others because they're getting a share of what you want. Maybe you feel burnout. I... I feel like in different places that I have been able to speak, I have heard a lot about burnout from the last few years. But burnout could indicate that there might be a lack of dependence on God's strength. 
there might be some self-reliance there. It could also indicate, like for me, I notice when I feel burnout, it's, there's a prayerlessness there. I've been directing myself. I have not been leaning on God and going to him for direction. Taking orders from myself, not him. But I think burnout could also mean we don't know our limits, our God-given limits. We might think of ourselves as limitless like God, but we're not. We're not God, right? We have limits. He is God and we are not. We need rest. He doesn't. Or maybe you feel a critical spirit or resentment of others' service, like they're not doing enough. And that could just indicate pride or a lack of your own self-awareness. What Athena was mentioning, there's, there's a lack of humility there about who you really are and how everything we have, you have is by God's grace. Even positively, maybe we feel really good about our service. But the problem is we only feel good when other people notice it. In that case, we need to remember what Jesus said, sisters. Beware of practicing your righteousness. So beware of practicing this, making it a habit. Practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And this is hard given social media, right? For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So we we just talked about how that's our hope as God's servants, is the hope of blessing and of reward from the Lord. But here, Jesus is warning, if you're in the habit of only doing things in order to receive the blessing of other people's praise, that's all you're going to get. You will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Notice how Jesus brings up the idea of reward again and again. He doesn't say, beware of practicing righteousness in public, right? And then that's it. He's, he's not like, don't practice your righteousness in public, No, he knows that the Christian life is observable by everyone, and it should be. People should be able to tell by the way that you live, by the way that you speak, who it is you serve and who it is you live for. What he is saying here is that we need to beware. We need to pay attention to be on guard about living our righteousness only in front of other people. That's the warning. Just going to check our time. As servants of the Most High God, we have an audience of one, and our lives are meant to be spent in service to honoring him and lifting him up, magnifying him, right? Our lives, as faithful servants, we are putting a magnifying glass on God and his character and his goodness. We want his blessing. We live for his honor. So, The other thing I have there that's helpful to do is ask yourself hard questions. Maybe you can do this in a discipling relationship from time to time. Ask yourself hard questions. Are you seeking to honor God or honor yourself? Are you serving by faith or in the flesh? I think when we ask ourselves these questions, we know the answer, right? Are others around us thriving spiritually, even physically from our service? Or are they wilting because we're we are too we're putting too many burdens on them, or maybe they're wilting because we're actually not doing anything to build them up? I think asking these kind of questions helps focus our service and what we give our energy and time to. The other thing that I think is helpful is to know the why behind the what. In theological terms, we call this the indicative and the imperative. Because we often focus on the what. I think this is a particular temptation for women. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it, right? We want to deal with the what. The what 
what we are to do is easier to deal with. The why is the most elusive part. It's the part that we often don't give much thought to when we're on autopilot doing the what. And yet, the why is where we get our identity from. So, for example, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. So in 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter is instructing them about gifts. So we talked about Ephesians. Also, Paul mentions God has given us these grace gifts to equip the church. Well, Peter writes this in chapter 4, verse 10. He says, as each has received a gift, so you've received a gift. If you are in Christ, you have received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So Peter is instructing believers to use their gifts to serve one another. He tells them the what, what to do, how to speak, how to serve. But notice in that passage, he gives the why. So according to this passage, you can shout it out, why? What is the why behind what he's asking them to do? Why do they speak and serve this way? Why? That in everything, God may be glorified through who? Through Jesus Christ. So that's the why, right? And isn't that helpful? Just looking at the why will help us with the what. If we only focus on the what, you're just, it's just moralism. We're just doing moralistic living. Anyone can serve. Anyone can be kind. Anyone can be nice to their neighbors. But for the Christian, the why is what makes all the difference. That in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. This, the why is what fuels our living and our service. It is what sharpens our motivations. So get your identity from the who, who we serve, but also sharpen your identity by remembering the why, why we serve. And I just want to say quickly a quick caveat, because I know that in this fallen world, life as a servant is anything but easy. Being in a servant position is a position of vulnerability. And some of us have been hurt in the church. We have been hurt maybe even manipulated, maybe our service was abused. There are those, Paul, the apostles talk about this, there will be those in the church who will use other believers to fulfill their purposes, not God's. And really, it's what they want these brothers and sisters to do in order to bring glory to themselves. Some of the New Testament letters talk about this, false teachers in the church who manipulate others for their own gain. If this has happened to you, if service feels like a burden more than a joy right now, I pray for your healing. I pray that the Lord would heal and restore you to spiritual health so that you would continue to honor him all of your days. Well, lastly, I just want to send us off um, with an exhortation to choose the good portion. What do I mean by that? Well, in a very famous story, I think we most of us know, 
in Luke 10, we have this really funny moment recorded with Jesus and the two sisters, Martha and Mary. Right? Martha, she's working hard. She's hosting. She's cooking up a storm. She's entertaining. She sees Mary, her sister, just sitting there listening to Jesus talk. And she is mad. What does she do? In her impatience, she gets up, she goes over to Jesus, and she rebukes Jesus. She tells him, get get her to help me. Get her up to help me. And Jesus, the Savior who loves her, looking into her heart, says, Martha, you are anxious, and you are troubled about a bunch of stuff. But one thing is necessary. One thing is necessary, he says. This does not characterize all of Martha's life. It's a snapshot that we have into her life in that moment. But it's also a snapshot into what our Savior is like. He meets her. He loves her. He sees her service. But he wanted her to remember to choose the good portion. In that moment, she had become untethered or ungrounded. She was on the loose, and Jesus wanted her to tether herself back to him, to the very things that he was saying. He wanted her to remember the why behind the what. So sisters, that same good shepherd, he calls us to do the same. He calls us to choose the good portion, which will not be taken away from us. Be in God's word. Be informed by God's word about what it means to be his servant. We are those who are defined by who we serve. We are defined by who we serve, not what we do. And as we remember who we belong to and what he has said, we can do things like cook meals, say an encouraging word, disciple someone in the church, evangelize, support our husbands, patiently love our kids, show self-control, lead Bible study, tend to our homes, share with our neighbors, serve in children's ministry, fight sin, and show hospitality. We can do that all to the glory of God. That is our aim, the glory of God. Therefore, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we are your servants. But because of Christ, we are also your daughters. What a joy to be among the household of the Most High King. Lord, it is better to be a doorkeeper in your house than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. So lead us, Lord. Help us remember who it is we serve and that that's more important than what we do. We serve you, the Lord Christ. Keep us from the temptation of thinking otherwise. We pray all this for the sisters in this room, Lord. We pray that we would go out and serve you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, ladies. You. Praise God. So I think you have a few minutes, and then I, the next seminar will start at 1035, 1035.